Well, Nehemiah 13. Now, you guys might remember back in Nehemiah 10. They had, through the scriptures, realized there were three areas that they really needed as a Jewish nation. Now, the Jews had laws. We in the New Testament don't. But as a Jewish nation, there was three things that they had fallen into in their recent history uh, since they had been back in Jerusalem. And through reading of the scriptures, they were wanting to correct them. One was on the issue of intermarriage because the Jews were not supposed to marry anybody but Jews. And then the buying and selling, acting like the Sabbath day was like any other day of the week when the Sabbath day was a day of rest. There was to be no work. And then the third is that they would continue giving their tithes and offerings to support the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temples, etc. Because... Again, in previous history, they didn't do that, and everybody just went back and acted like farmers, and they weren't had nothing to do with the temple, and uh, they knew that was so important to continue all the work that would need to be done year around for all the feasts and the and the celebrations, but also for the day in and day out working of the priests. So, what we find is some point before chapter thirteen, Nehemiah went back to Susha to the king uh, Artaxerxes to reestablish. Now remember up front back in chapter 1 Nehemiah uh, the king said how long are you going to be gone and he told him how long. We don't know what that was but he ended up being gone around 10 most believe 12 years. So <laughs> the king was incredibly gracious to him. Hey a couple more months. Hey a couple more months. You've been saying that for 10 years. Oh, just a couple more months. It ended up being 12 years, most think. So he ended up being the governor of Jerusalem a very long time. He returns back. We don't know how long. A few months is what I'm thinking. Maybe a, a year or two. But he comes back now to Jerusalem. And he has seen the affairs. And this is what we are looking at. And this is a, the last lesson in leadership here is that once a leader gets that group of people to accomplish a task, he then comes back to do follow-up. So if you would, this is the follow-up uh, visit to the great revival that God worked, you know. The idea is with revivals is you keep them going until the Lord returns, you know. You don't let it die out. Now we've got to get revived again, uh, you know. It's like the guy that gets all in good shape. And then he gets lazy for six months. And then he's back at zero, getting back in shape. You know how hard that is, those first three or four months? It it's, it's, kills you. And then you're like, I'm never going to get out of shape again. But, you know, you keep sort of that horrible cycle. And, um, and so here they, they had a wonderful revival. And it was going strong when Nehemiah left. But he returns to find the revival is not so strong. However, in saying that, in the first two verses, it did seem that amongst the majority of the people, there was a real pattern of revival and continued obedience there. And that's what we see in verse 1 and 2. On that day, they read the book of Moses. That would be the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, also known as um, the Talmud, also known as the books of Moses. 
And so they were reading there, and in the hearing of the people, that's what they were doing when Nehemiah left. Remember, everybody had gathered together, and they would read and discuss it and, and figure out what it's saying and then how to obey it. And as they're doing this pattern, they happened to be reading, and uh, they came across the scriptures, which we're going to discover in a minute, Deuteronomy 23. And they found the, the passage, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 and 4, that no Ammonite or Moabite in particular should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water and also hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned that curse into a blessing. So he talks on a number of different variety of things here. You sort of got to know the first five books of the Bible to understand what's happening here. But in particular, the Ammonites, not the Amorites, they're another horrible group. We talked about them a week ago. This is the Ammonites with an N, not an R. The Ammonites and then the Moabites. So when the children of Israel left Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land, they, they battled a lot of different groups, especially when they got into the promised land. They had a lot of other groups to fight. But these two particular people set out to destroy Israel. Now, you guys remember that story, no doubt, in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, the story of Balaam. It's mentioned here. You, you guys might remember he's the one whose donkey started talking to him. And then crazier yet, he started talking to the donkey. And uh, I always would love what J. Vernon McGee um, always says on that passage. He goes, back in these days, it was a miracle when asses spake. <laughs> in other words, it's not, so, not such a miracle anymore. But anyway, um, so if you remember, the, the king of Moab went to Balak, went to Balaam and said, prophesy against these people. And Balaam was a prophet of God, even though he wasn't a Jew. And God said, no, you can't do that. These are my people. Well, to make a long story short, Balaam just wanted the money. Lots of money was offered, and he kept going back to God, and God finally said, okay, prophesy, but you can only prophesy what I say. And God prophesied, and Balaam prophesied blessings. But after the fact, and it's not mentioned here, Balaam did say, hey, I couldn't curse them, but I still want that money, and I got a plan for you. Take those beautiful Moabite ladies, go down and seduce the Jewish men and tell them just as you get them hot and, and they're all heated up, ready to have sex, say, oh, first, it's our custom that you bow down and worship our God. And believe me, they're going to be, uh, you know, all hot and ready and they'll do whatever they ask. And then God brought a plague on the children of Israel. So that's another story altogether. But in particular here, the, the Bible mentions that no Moabitess or Moabite person or Amorite or Amorites would ever be able to come and be a part of the children of Israel. Now, here's what's wonderful about this. Is unless <laughs> they repent and come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then all of a sudden, hey, 
you can be a part of us. Because if you remember the story of Ruth, we just taught that a while back, right? Remember who Ruth was. She was a Moabitess who was the grandmother of King David. <laughs> King David's grandma was a Moabitess. And she's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. But either way, they were reading this and they were convicted because some of them had married into the Ammonites and the Moabites. They just lived right on the other side of the Dead Sea. So if you look at Israel, one of the borders of Israel is on the east is the Jordan River and it goes into the Dead Sea. And so half of the Dead Sea was also Israel and half of the Dead Sea was in the land of Moab and Ammonites, the Moabites, and the tribe of Esau, the, the Edomites, made up three tribes on the eastern border of Israel. And, uh, and so, make a long story short here, he, they realize we're not supposed to be doing this, and we intermarried, and we need to repent. And like in the book of Ezra, a very hard, difficult thing, they separated them out with their children and their wives, and they, they separated from there. And uh, in verse 3, So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitudes from Israel. Which again, we know from Ezra, was a very, very difficult thing. We just sort of have an abridged version here. It just says, that's it. That's all I'm going to give you. That his father's house had eaten him up. It was just burning in him. That it would be a place that would be for prayer. It would be a pure place and not a manipulative place. And so we do see in Nehemiah Jesus-style leadership as well. Well, now he immediately has to take care of another issue in verse 10 through 14. I also realized that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them for each of the Levites and the singers who did not work had gone back to their field. We looked last time at how the singers and the Levites out, who were living in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, they, there were compounds of these guys, their kibbutz, and that, that's where that they would grow their own vegetation and fruit and, and have their chickens for eggs and goats for milk and all of that. So not too far from Jerusalem. But the fact was, is they could just go live and have a farmer's life, much easier life than living in the temple. A much easier life than wrestling with the rebellious children of Israel. So they were living in Jerusalem, remember? Most of them, because they had to. They lost the lottery. <laughs> a tenth of them, a tithe of the children of Israel had to live in the city and nobody really wanted to. So it wouldn't have taken much for them to say, okay, I, I, there's no money and we're just going to go instead of for a few days on the kibbutz and help you know, garden and take care of the animals. We'll just go live there. We already have a place there anyway. And uh, the singers also had a singing compound. They had a singing kibbutz, artistry kibbutz. And in verse 11 here, And so I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their place. Verse 12, That all of Judah brought the tithes and the grain and the new wine and the oil and the storehouse. So evidently Nehemiah got up and said, You guys need to tithe. I rebuke you for not tithing. Interesting, that's sort of one of the last verses of the Old Testament 
Where God says, you've robbed me. How have we robbed God? Can anybody rob God? How do you rob God? And he said, in my tithes and offerings. By not giving them, you've robbed me. And, um, and so here he says, you guys need to pick it up and, and do what you should have done while I was gone. I shouldn't have to been here to do the right thing. But now that I'm back, you guys uh, want this. You guys want things to be this way. But it all takes everybody working together to make it. So in verse 13, I appointed a treasurer over the storehouse, uh, Shelemiah, the priest, and Zodak the scribe, and the Levites, and Padilla. These are all the guys we had mentioned before. And next to them was Hanan, the son of Zerkah, and uh, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and the task was to distribute to their brethren. Oh, remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for its services. In essence, he's saying there, I was gone a few months, a year, a couple of years, we don't know, but I come back to ground zero. It's like all the labors of over a decade, probably 12 years, are undone within just a short time of me not being here. And I really believe that I'd put something in motion that would stay in motion. But because of the children of Israel's depart of stubbornness and rebellious and disobedience, it didn't last very long. But that shouldn't take away from my heavenly rewards, uh, even though all the work that I did didn't really have a lasting uh, effect. Well, here's the next step in verse 15 to 22. Now, this is about the Sabbath day. Now, in those days, I saw the people in Judah, and they were treading the wine press on the Sabbath. Now, I want to stop here and make a note. Which tribe is it? The tribe of Judah. So, understand, Nehemiah has come back, and who are his problems with? His problems are with all the leadership. You've got the priest, you know, Plush and Tobiah, the enemy of God, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of Nehemiah out in, in the place where only the priests were to be. And you've got all of the leaders rather than leading and stepping up going, hey, remember, we're supposed to tithe. We're supposed to give offerings. We're supposed to support the temple. We're supposed to support the gatekeepers and the singers and, and, uh, Rather than leading it, they're like, hey, oh, people don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to come. They don't want to come. They don't want to give. They don't want to give. I just, you know, whatever. I'll just go back and farm. That's not being a leader, is it? You, you guys that have been parents here, you know what a big part of leading is, especially as your kids become teenagers. It's just being the wall, being the big giant pillars, right? They're constantly trying to move you. And you've got to stand your ground and to say, no, this is who we are. This is what I stand for and I'm not moving. And they pound up against you and beat you and bruise you and knock holes in you. And, and you stand firm so they don't destroy themselves. So you keep order. Talked about this a couple of weeks back. You've got order or you've got disorder. There's nothing in between. You've got order or you've got chaos. You've got order and fruitfulness, or you've got disorder and complete unfruitfulness. Order takes work, right? If you want to have a clean house, that takes work. If you want to have a dirty house, that doesn't take any work. 
Interesting, isn't it? If you want to have clean clothes, it takes work. If you want to have dirty clothes, it doesn't take any work. In the same way, if you want to do something as a group where, you know, I don't care how good the coach is, he can't go out on the football field and be the quarterback and the hiker and the guard and the tackle and the, he, he, he can't throw the ball to himself. He's, he, he's got to have a team, right? It can't be done by one person. It can't be done by five people. You have to have a whole team. In the same way here, this is who he's having problems with. Now here, he has the problem with Judah. Who is that? The royal tribe, the King David tribe. Remember earlier when they were building the wall? Which tribe, the elders of the tribe, would not put their shoulder to the work? The tribe of Judah. The kingly royal tribe would not lift a rock. But then we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, and the people are being oppressed because there's people preying on them, giving them these extraordinary loans to pay their taxes and to buy food while they're building the wall. Which tribe was doing that? The tribe of Judah. And now Nehemiah is gone, and who is causing the problems again? It's the tribe of Judah. Clearly, obviously, they should not be working on the Sabbath day. And they're out in the wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in the sheaves, loading the donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You're not to have a lift a burden or have any animals or anything lift a burden on the Sabbath. And I warned them all that day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish. Tyre is, is Lebanon, the Phoenician people just right next door. Jesus went down to Tyre and Sidon, remember? Um, so they're just right next door. They're neighbors and they're, they're a fishing people. So they had brought up all their fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of who? Judah <laughs> in Jerusalem. So then I contended. This is what leaders have to do. They got to be the wall. I contended with the nobles of Judah. And I said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not our, your fathers do thus? And did not your God bring all this disaster on us on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now, what is he bringing up here? Where had they been <laughs> for the last hundred years? In Babylon. Do you remember why they ended up getting spanked by God and they had to stay in Babylon for 70 years? Because they would not obey God by keeping the seventh year Sabbath. Every seventh year, they were to take an entire year's vacation. Isn't God mean? <laughs> Keep my commandments, take an entire year's vacation, and I will supernaturally provide for you. Trust me. 490 years they were in the land. Do you know how many times they trusted God and <clears throat> took that one year off? Zero. That's right. So seven divided into 490 comes out to be 70. God said, I was giving you the year's rest and I would have just poured blessings upon you. But instead, I'm still going to get my Sabbath day's rest. 
but you're not going to be blessed by it. You're going to be in Babylon as servants and slaves and harshly treated. And uh, he's saying, can, can you guys not connect the dots here? You disobeyed God's Sabbath, and this is why we're at the place we're at right now in such difficulties. We barely get back here. We barely get the wall built. We barely get the temple built. We're barely limping along here. And you're doing exactly what our forefathers did that put us in this stinking place. I'm shocked that you're not connecting the dots. Well, in verse 19, so it was as the gates of Jerusalem, as it had begun, began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged them that they not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants of the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the mines of wares lodges outside Jerusalem once or twice. So they kept showing up. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And it wasn't to pray for them. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. They're like, I think he's going to beat us. Yes, he was. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go on guard the gates so to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, concerning this also. Spare me according to the greatness of your mercies. I'm telling these guys, here's what the word of God says. They, they, they don't move at all. Yeah, 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 we know the Bible says that. And they just show right up, ready to repeat what they did the Sabbath day before. And finally, he says, I got a bunch of soldiers here. I'm not going to be talking to you next time from this wall. I'm going to be down right there with you, and I'm going to be beating you guys silly, and I mean literally, if you show up again. And they got the message finally, but he's grieved. He's like, they, they won't respond to your word. They don't have that, the, the tribe of Judah, these rich businessmen, they're not like the rest of the people. They don't have this sensitive heart to say, ah, we're not supposed to be married to Ammonites or Moabites. We've got to get rid of them. And, and, and they separate and break their family up and send them away. Boy, such obedience in the heart of the average person. But you've got these rich leaders and business people and they are as hard as rocks. And he has to literally, the, the fear of God does nothing. The word of God does nothing. He's got to threaten to civilly beat them before they will respond. And um, if they're not doing it from the heart, it's not going to last, right? Uh, I mean, the day he's not there to beat them, they'll show back up. And um, now, now again, in the Sabbath day in the New Testament, we discover we have no such law. A matter of fact, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, it tells plainly, we have no law. There is no law for us as believers. No law. And it goes on to tell us that Christ fulfilled the law and then he destroyed the law by when he was on the cross, he took those handwriting ordinances, it tells us in Colossians 2, and he nailed them to the cross, taking them out of the way. And then we also learn that the real point of the law, like all the other laws, were they, they were a shadow of Christ. And how was the Sabbath 
a shadow? Because when you go back to creation, on the sixth day, God made man. Their first day of life was the Sabbath day. To just fully rest and enjoy the completed work of God. If you go back and read the creation story there in chapter 2 of Genesis, it says repeatedly, and it was finished, and it was done, and it was completed, and it was finished, and it was done. God did no more labors. God did no more work. It's, it's crazy emphatic. And then it tells us in Hebrews 4 that the children of Israel never entered into the rest because they never could just trust God by faith. And then he says there in Hebrews 4.10, He who has entered into God's rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. He doesn't feel like he has to work to get salvation, work to get God's blessings. He just knows by faith he has it because God loves him. Well, finishing up here in verse 23. So in those days, I also saw the Jews, and this is on the marriage issue once again, they had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and a whole lot more. And he had to do the same thing. That the children didn't even speak Hebrew. And he had to again go down. And in verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them and struck them and pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters as wives to those sons. Nor take the daughters for your sons for yourself. No more intermarrying. And then he says, don't you remember about Solomon in verse 26? He was the king. He was the wisest guy that ever lived. But yet he ended up destroying Israel through intermarrying into the women from various nations. And if the wisest man, the greatest king, when Israel was the most prosperous, could not get away with it, how do you figure you're going to get away with it? So in verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service. And, uh, and then in verse 31, the very last, ver last part of it says, remember me, O my God, for good. He's, he's basically saying, this isn't working. I gave it my best and it has completely failed. Isn't that really the entire story of Israel? From the beginning to the end of the story, they're the same. God brings them out of Egypt. He gives them the law, 613 laws, the vows, the rules, the promises, covenants, etc. And then they can't do them. They try, they can't do them. They try, they fail. They try, they fail. God sends judges and miracles and prophets and kings and, and, and they can never seem to have a pattern of following God and obeying Him. Paul explains this in Romans 3, verse 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, says is are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, period. That's all the law can do. 
is show you you can't do it. When you guys see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch, what do you do? You know, if, if I had if I had a hundred cabinets up here and I said, hey, I need you to watch these cabinets. I'll be back in an hour. You can look in any of them you want, but this one right down here. Don't open that. The 99, look all you want. That one, do not open. And I leave. What do you want to do? This is what the law, this is what Paul talks about Romans 7, is that the law just, just amplifies the fact I'm a sinner. And whatever sin I struggle with, the law makes it utterly sinful, utterly clear that I can't obey God. He says there in, in verse 6, Romans chapter 7, verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In Romans seven fifteen, for what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate I, that I do. He goes on in verse 18 and 19. For I know that, that that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil that I will to do, that I practice. Then he ends that by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in chapter 8, starting in verse 3, And what the law could not do, and that it was weak, through the flesh. The law was righteous, but we just couldn't do it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. How? In us. He's going to explain because he puts his spirit in us. Remember the prophecies? That in those days, God says, you will be my people. I will put a new heart in you, a new spirit in you. And I will cause you to walk in truth. I will cause you to walk in righteousness. I want to end by reading a quote out of David Guzik's commentary. Too many Christians look for victory in the making of rules or vows or promises. And they fail to find it. Because... All those things tend to make us look to ourselves instead of looking to Jesus. The Old Testament history of Israel from beginning to end illustrates this. When the nation was first born in Exodus, despite the most spectacular miracles displayed of God's glory and revelations of the law, the people sinned by, credit, by crediting a golden calf <laughs> to their deliverance from Egypt. And now here, at the end of the Old Testament history of God's people, in the promised land, Nehemiah is pulling his hair out, his own and those of sinners, because they couldn't keep their promises to God. If we could be saved by our own promises, by our own commitment to Jesus, then his death would have, not, would have been noble but unnecessary. We aren't saved by some vow we make or some leaf we turn over, but by trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. Amen.